we're going to be thinking about miracles, and a, a miracle in particular. And I'm just curious this morning, as, as I'm looking out at the crowd, by show of hands, how many of you believe in miracles? All right, very good. Some of you don't. Uh, that's okay. I saw some professors that don't believe in miracles. That's fine. Uh, but when we say that we do believe in miracles, the, the, the real question I have to ask you is, what do you mean by that? See, I think that we ourselves actually use miracle in different ways, even when we're talking on a day-to-day basis. Uh, so for instance, you'll remember a little while back, the Chicago Cubs won the pennant, and it was the first time in a long time, and people said, man, it's a miracle they've won the pennant. And you think about it like, I don't know if they mean miracle in the same way the Bible means miracle. In fact, a lot of us have domesticated the nature of what a miracle is, and we've defined it as something more like what is improbable rather than what is impossible. But when we come to the New Testament, what we find is, is that Jesus is doing things. He is performing kinds of miracles that are not just improbable. It's not just that he beat the statistics. It's that he is doing things. He's performing acts that are absolutely impossible if he is not displaying and demonstrating something only God can do. Well, this morning, that's exactly what we see in the story that we've just read about Jesus' seventh sign where he is raising Lazarus from the dead. He is not doing something that was merely improbable. He is doing something that is impossible. He's not merely doing something that says, uh, look at this nifty thing that I can do as a superhuman. He's saying, this is something that I could only do if I have a unique relationship with God. Well, in John 20, 31, we find that John has written this this whole gospel, the gospel of John, for this purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Now, chapter 10 that we read a a couple weeks ago, you'll remember that Jesus came uh, claiming to be the gate, and uh, he was the gate for the sheep, and he was also the good shepherd for his sheep. Those are the the last I am statements we looked at. But as you start to move into chapter 11, what we find in the Gospel of John is this is kind of a, a transition point in the Gospel of John where he is moving from these miracles that he has shown to the Jews into the preparation for his passion in chapters 13 to 20 that follow. Well, this morning as we are coming to John 11, 25, he claims and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, this statement erupts out of Jesus' seventh and climactic sign, that that thing we just heard about where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, This story is only covered in John's gospel. And what we find here is, is it is a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is to come. Now, during Jesus' day, he's often debating with Pharisees and Sadducees. And the Pharisees and Sadducees had particular beliefs about the resurrection, these people that Jesus is constantly talking with. Uh, So you'll remember that the Pharisees believed in a resurrection on the last day. Uh, Sadducees, of course, on the other hand, denied that there was going to be a resurrection on the last day. That's why they're sad, you see. Uh, Malachi gave me that one. You can give him credit for it later. But here Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, our big idea, if you're taking notes, a great thing to write down is this. It's that Jesus is the resurrection and eternal life for all who put their faith in him. Jesus is the resurrection and eternal life for all those who put their faith in him. Uh, Now, we're going to begin first with 
Jesus's beloved friend being sick in verses one to four. This is the problem that we are given as this chapter opens up. It's a story with lots of twists and turns, but it opens with a beloved friend being sick. Now, uh, you'll notice that Mary and her older sister, they are distraught here in these verses over their brother's sickness. But everything in this scene, if you're paying close attention, it is heightening the intimate love that this family enjoyed with Jesus. So let's look at what it says. It says in verses one to two, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, I'm struck by a couple of nuances just in these couple of verses as we begin. Uh, Notice for one that Jesus loved his family, this family, and they loved him. I, I think it's fascinating that John identifies Mary here as the one who had anointed Jesus with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair in verse 2. You see that. And the thing that fascinates me about this is he's about to tell us this story in chapter 12, but he hasn't told us yet. So he's giving us a foreshadowing of what is to come. See, there, if you go and read, you'll find that Mary takes three-fourths of a pound of costly perfume. This stuff was expensive. It was worth a whole year's wages. And she uses this to anoint Jesus' body down to his very feet as an act of utter humility, devotion, and love such that we are told that that whole house was full of the fragrance of this perfume as she wiped his feet. It was literally the the expression of her love was actually flowing out of the home. It's showing the the extravagance of this all-in kind of love that she had preparing her Savior for his burial, for his coming death. Now, why describe Mary in this way here, though? Well, maybe because there were a lot of Marys, a lot of Marys in Jesus' day and a lot in the New Testament. So you're just trying to say, hey, this Mary is a Mary that we're talking about really quickly. Uh, Maybe it could also be because John's audience had heard this story before they read it, and so they would have been familiar with this Mary. Or maybe also because it front loads the depths of the love that were enjoyed between Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In fact, verse 5, you'll notice that it quickly reminds us again. And did we remind you? Did did you remember? Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In fact, it almost is highlighting the fact that he didn't just love them collectively, but individually. He loved each one of these these people. These people that are the main characters in the story. Well, notice a problem is introduced in verse 3, though. Jesus' beloved friend is, is sick. Jesus, in verse 3, receives the message, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, this sounds a lot like John's reference to himself. You remember he calls himself the beloved disciple. But here he's, he's speaking to, or hearing a message from Lazarus, the one he loves, and he's sick. Now, Jesus just healed uh, others in this, in this book. But it it sounds like a very familiar problem because he has just healed a blind man in John 9 where the disciples were asking, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Why is it that he is sick in this way? To which Jesus says, neither, his blindness was, uh, neither of these people sinned. His blindness was for the purpose 
that the works of God might be displayed in him. And just look how Jesus responds here in John eleven four. He says, this is why he was ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now, if you are the disciples, I'm guessing that if you're hearing this after the things that have happened in John 4, 5, and 9, where there have been healings, that he is, they are thinking to themselves, okay, Jesus is going to heal him like he's healed the others. This is kind of like a, a sort of a normal thing that Jesus does now. See, the purpose was always here to reveal that Jesus was God's son to the glory of God the Father. They just didn't know how he was going to do it. Now, before we move on, let me just say really quickly, this is not one of those what would Jesus do kind of moments, okay? You hear me? Like, what I'm talking about is they just heard that Lazarus is sick, right? And Jesus does what? He says, hey, it's okay. This is for the purpose of God's glory. He's not going to have an illness to the point of death. This isn't the script for how you respond to your friend who has cancer, who got Crohn's or whatever. This is not sort of one of those texts that says this is what humanity revving on all cylinders looks like. See, Jesus is not only fully God, he is fully man. He is truly God and truly man in every way. And here I think we see Jesus as the God-man with a unique, intimate kind of knowledge of God's secret purposes for Lazarus in this moment and his sickness that's not normative for every Christian. So why is he here? Why did, why did John put this, this piece of the story in? Well, I like what Chrysostom from the 4th and 5th century says. He asked why Jesus included this as well. He said, why didn't he just get on with performing the miracle? And, and then he answers it this way. It's that we ought not to complain and to bear it hard if those who are exemplary, friends of God, become sick. Do you see it? He's saying, look, here is a man, Lazarus, whom Jesus, the God-man, loved very much, and he got sick. Now, some will be glorified through healing, and some will be glorified through suffering to the end of the glory of God. But this is really giving us hope about the nature of what it means when godly people get sick. See, friends of God, full of faith, get sick in this broken world. And here's an encouragement for believers struggling with sickness. Jesus loves you. He loves you to the point of laying down his life for you. He loves you. And for those who are suffering with grief over the loss of death, here's the message for you. God loves you. Christ loves you you. And Jesus knows the grief of what it is to lose someone you love greatly or to watch someone who is sick become sick even to the point of physical death. He understands your grieving and he loves you. But this story really isn't about God leaving us in that. But before things get, get better, they get worse. Notice second, Jesus' friend dies in verses 5 to 16. Now here's what's fascinating. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus actually waits two days before going on the journey back to his friend Lazarus. Now, we know he didn't stay away for lack of love. We, we've been told that. But I think in these verses we find a couple of other reasons that Jesus did not delay. A couple of important reasons. Uh, notice, first, 
Jesus didn't delay for fear of death in verses 5 to 10. In other words, he wasn't staying away because he was worried about his safety. You'll remember that John 10 ended with the Jews wanting to destroy Jesus. They wanted to arrest him and stone him. And that's why when Jesus tells his disciple it's time to go back to Judea, that his disciples remind him, notice, look there in verse 8, that the Jews were just trying to stone you. Have you forgotten that? But catch Jesus' response in verses 9 to 10. He says this, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. See, Jews broke the the day into 12 hours, and you would work in the 12 hours of daylight, and work would stop at nighttime. Now, I think this applies to both Jesus and the disciples. Don Carson opens this up, and he says, these verses really are metaphorically insisting that Jesus is safe as long as he performs his Father's will. Reminds me a little bit of that quote by, by George Whitfield, where he says, we are immortal until our work here on earth is done. Well, Jesus here said, until my work is done, I'm safe. And not only that, you as disciples realize that you are safe as long as you are with me, who is the the spiritual son in your lives, until the darkness comes at the cross. So while it's still daylight, let's be about the work and not be afraid of what this world can do to us. But notice another reason that Jesus didn't delay in verses 11 to 16. He didn't delay for ignorance. It's not like he was unaware of how bad Lazarus' situation was or how real the danger was. Uh, Notice how the plot thickens here. In verse 11, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I I go to awaken him. I love love this. This is a picture of Jesus' omniscience. It's contrasted with the confusion throughout. It seems as though the disciples don't really understand what's going on, even when Jesus explains it. It seems like Martha and Mary are still confused, and even at the resurrection, we'll see there's confusion. But Jesus, all along the way, he is confident. He's not in any way stifled or or held up by what's going on. But notice the disciples' response in verse 12. Confusion again. It's almost as though they say, Well, if he's napping, that's great. Get the guy some soup and he'll be better. Naps are good for recovery. But Jesus explains in verses 14 to 15, no, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, did you catch how Jesus' response, it's not surprise. His beloved friend is not only sick, he's now dead. Jesus knows that. We we don't have record of a messenger coming and telling him that. He just knows it. And Jesus is glad that he wasn't there. Why? Well, it's so the disciples might believe. See, Lazarus is dead, and Jesus says, okay, now we can go. Now it's time to go. Now it's my Father's time for us to go and do my Father's work. Now, we've seen Jesus heal the sick, but raise the dead? Now, at this point, you, you might be thinking, that sounds crazy to me. But, but maybe in the first century, you know, they had lots of myths and stories, and maybe they just believed, like, in all kinds of, like, crazy things like unicorns, which maybe once existed. But what about now? I mean, we're a lot more sophisticated. We have eye watches that can keep track of our heartbeats and 
iPhones that we can make phone calls across the planet in a moment. We're more sophisticated. And so maybe that was good for them, but not us. Well, hear me. I'm not a fan of of N.T.'s right and his uh, understanding of justification. But he has a book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, and I believe that he has some really good research in there. And I think that he helps us understand the dramatic tension that is developing in John 11 in that context. See, Wright says nobody in the pagan world of Jesus' day and thereafter actually claimed that somebody had been truly dead and then come to be truly and bodily alive once more. This would have been strange then. They weren't like Neanderthals who were thinking like, oh, maybe this will do. See, nobody appears to have expected a resurrection. We even get that throughout this text. They expected to find death and more death, not resurrection and life. But look at verse 16. We find Thomas just putting an exclamation mark on that. Thomas called the twin. In verse 16, it it says this. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we might die with him. Now, we all know doubting Thomas from John 20, where he demanded the evidence of the wounds of Christ to believe that it really was the resurrected Jesus Christ. But this is really an interesting statement. You could take it in different ways. In fact, Andreas Kostenberger in his commentary points out some of the ways. Uh, Thomas could be saying something to the effect of, let's go die with Jesus, or let's go die with Lazarus, who's already dead. And Thomas could also be sincere demonstrating a willingness to die with Jesus. Like, let's go support our king. Or he could be sarcastic saying, well, I guess we're just going to go die like Lazarus did. Anyway, you cut it, Thomas sees that visiting Lazarus is actually ending more in death than resurrection and life. He doesn't have hope of a resurrection as he goes. Now, maybe as you read this text, you feel a lot like Thomas. You think to yourself, I want to believe in this Christianity stuff, but I believe that I need to actually see a physical miracle. If I believed a physical miracle, then I really would believe Jesus and all the spiritual stuff. But absent that, I can't believe because I'm a man of science or something. But when Jesus promises a future resurrection of the dead, he's not talking about a metaphor. And just because you haven't ever seen an actual miracle doesn't mean that Jesus hasn't performed a miracle. In fact, The reason we think it's a miracle is because it's something not a lot of people have seen. Now, maybe you think faith in Jesus means death, not life. Maybe you're thinking, if I were to follow Jesus and believe in this whole picture of Jesus giving people new life and abundant life and resurrection life and eternal life, that it would mean that you have to in some way stifle the joys of this world. As though that's kind of the the sort of um, bargain or wager that you would have to make for faith in Christ. But Thomas would later need to touch the very wounds of the resurrected Christ, maybe like you're demanding to, to understand and to believe. And it's then that Jesus says to him in John 21, 29, have you believed because you have seen me, even touched my wounds? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think we get a a tip of the hat here that there is a miracle that happens when anyone puts their faith in Jesus. There is a spiritual reality that is dawning and the souls of those who are dead spiritually being brought to life to see Jesus as the King. And I hope that speaks of some here today who, even as they hear this, feel something in their soul crying out for the King. 
But notice third, Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I love this, verses 17 to 27. See, Jesus showed up to an absolute mob scene four days after Lazarus had died. So you remember, he got the message on day one. I'm guessing that uh, likely, it's likely that Lazarus might have even died as the message was reaching him or on the way. Then he waited two days, and then it took a day's journey to get back near Bethany where he was going to meet with Mary and Martha. And it's then that Martha runs out to see Jesus. But look what happens in verses 21 to 24. Here's what it says. When Martha gets to him, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, I love Martha's confident faith that Lazarus would not have died had Jesus been there. Do you you hear that? That's a statement of confidence in Jesus. Even as Lazarus is in the tomb, I know that if you were here, death would not win. And she trusts even now. God will do whatever you ask. But it's obvious that she's got a qualifier on that, right? I mean, she, she too looks confused when Jesus says, Lazarus will rise again. She responds, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I've studied my eschatology. I know what happens in last day in times. She sounds a lot like the Pharisees here who believed in a resurrection of the dead on the last day. She even sounds a lot like Jesus here, who's already said in John 5, 28 to 29, and John 6, 39 to 40, as he has healed people, he goes on to promise a resurrection of the dead on the last day. This is just a a kind of down payment for the future that is coming. But don't miss what Jesus says here. This is, I believe, a unique and clarifying statement that Jesus is making about his person. In verses 25 to 26, he goes on to say this. He says to her, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. You hear that? I am. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Did, did you catch that? Jesus tells Martha, I'm not just talking about the last day. I'm talking about today, what is standing before you. Hope in the resurrection on the last day only comes to those who have faith in Jesus Christ today. Now, I I like the way that Augustine breaks verses 25 and 26 down. He says 25 is explaining Jesus as the resurrection, and verse 26 is explaining Jesus as the life. I think that Jesus is making an amazing promise to believers here, so I don't want us to miss this. I think verses 25 to 26 are saying something like this. If you put your faith in Jesus, even though you die physically as a believer, you will be raised up to new physical life at the resurrection. And everyone who has eternal life that comes by faith will never die spiritually experiencing damnation, condemnation, and eternal death. Now, That's a lot to take in. But that is what I believe Jesus is saying to Martha. And I love Martha's response. Did you see how she responded? It was perfect. She didn't say, 
Yes, Jesus, I believe in your theory and theology of last days now. I had thought something wrong, now I believe in something right. Is that what she says? No. Instead, verse 27, it says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Do you see it? My faith isn't in this theology about last days, it's about you, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I believe you are who you say you are, and that you have the authority and the power to give life to death. What you just said might be beyond me, Martha says, but I believe in you even as my brother lay dead in that tomb. You were able. Still today, as we face death, Jesus asks us if we believe he is the resurrection and the life. I'm not talking about some pie in the sky kind of ivory tower theology. It's when we are surrounded by death, by COVID, by our wives, our husbands, our friends dying all around us. Jesus is inviting us again to answer the question, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life Christian? And our answer today is the same as it was yesterday, the same that will be tomorrow, and the same that will be forevermore. I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Are you with me? Great evangelist George Whitfield, as I said before, said we are immortal until our work on earth is done. And if we really believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then that is the kind of theology that can propel us to have confidence when confronted by death. It is the kind of theology that can give us confidence to go to foreign lands and preach the gospel to people that might kill us, like Jim Elliot. This is the theology that has legs that takes us on the mission of Christ into dangerous places, trusting that he is our resurrection and our life. A Christian here, Christ promised here, if you have lost someone you love who is a believer in Christ, they are with Christ even now and will receive a new eternal body on the last day. Do you hear the, the hope in that? Maybe you just need to be reminded of that this morning because you've begun to doubt that. And when we who are alive in Christ, we are promised that we might die physically. We're, we're promised that. But we are also promised that we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, and Philippians 1, 23, that it is far better to be with the Lord. Do you believe that? See, death is startling because we are not created to die. But for believers in Jesus, death is a door into a fuller life of fellowship with Christ. See, this life is about Jesus, and when we die, we get more Jesus until that day, that last day, when we get what? All of Jesus forever. Now, former pastor Rob Bell is a pastor who fled traditional Christianity, denying miracles like the virgin birth in Velvet Elvis, and then later, an understanding of a literal uh, hell and heaven in Love Wins. And even though he, he espouses heresy, he did offer a good caution against some who would claim to hold a traditional view of heaven and hell, and, and, and maybe that's you today. He characterizes it as a theology of evacuation. He said that's what a lot of Christians hold to, a theology of evacuation. And by that, he means that Jesus has really just offered as a way to get out of this bad place to a good place. 
But it doesn't really offer you any kind of substantial theology for how to, hear, to live in the here and now today. It doesn't give you any kind of substantial hope for actually making change in your life or bringing about change in the lives of those around you. But don't miss this. Jesus, if that's you and you're believing that kind of theology, maybe you're like Martha, like I'm just waiting to get to the end where we get evacuated. Jesus is far more than fire insurance or an evacuation plan. He is the resurrection and the life today. Eternal life begins with faith uniting us to Jesus Christ who is the resurrection and the life. And that reality ought to shape the way that we live. If you put your faith in Christ, you're united with Christ who is resurrection and is the life in you, transforming you from one degree of glory into the image of Jesus Christ until that last day when Christ returns to complete the great work that he has begun in you. But here Jesus, Jesus says, your theology of the resurrection and eternal life centers on a person and not a place. Did you hear that? Your future, your future is about a person that you believe in, Jesus Christ, and not just a place that you go to. So when you put your faith in him, you enter into a relationship with the one who has the power over life and death and the one who is able to raise you up on the last day. But fourth, Notice this beautiful picture of the emotions of Jesus as Jesus wept before Mary in 28 to 37. Did you see that? Now in verses 28 to 31, Jesus sends Martha back to tell Mary to come and meet with him privately. But it it seems that some of the Jews follow her out to where Jesus, and they were thinking that she was going to weep at the tomb, but they're going to meet with him. Now, if you've ever read about like Jewish funerals, um, apparently it was expected of them that even poor families of the day would hire at least two flute players and a wailing woman at a funeral. And this family seems to be well off, so I'm guessing they had lots of flutes and lots of people wailing all around that were paid to do it, so they did it really good. And I'm, I'm guessing that means that this moment seemed hysterical with all of the wailing in the background. And notice here that as Mary comes out, she displays the same kind of faith that Martha did in verse 21. She falls at his feet and she says, I I believe that if you were here, Lazarus would not have died. But then notice after verse 32, what follows is really one of the unique views of the heart of Jesus that we get in all of the Bible. Look there what it says. This is a window into his internal workings. It says, when Jesus saw her weep, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. Jesus looks on Mary and the Jews who are literally wailing with grief over the death of Lazarus. And John says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then after the Jews asked, could Jesus not have kept this man from dying if he is who he says he is? And in verse 38, it says that Jesus again was deeply moved and he came to the tomb. 
And what does it mean, though, that Jesus was deeply moved? What is that language trying to communicate about the nature of Jesus? It's repeated both in verses 33 and 38. And these things are in the midst of him weeping. Well, B.B. Warfield, that great Princeton theologian, he, he might be the, the greatest theologian or the last great theologian of Princeton before they went liberal. He wrote a book called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And there he's considering the sinless emotions of Jesus. But Warfield argues from this text that the Greek for deeply moved is not actually strong enough because it's speaking of Jesus approaching the grave of Lazarus, not with uncontrollable grief, that's not really the image, but instead with irrepressible anger. So that's the, the meaning behind this word. God was, in a sense, Jesus was raging as he was approaching. Now he says the same word was used to describe Jesus as deeply moved, both in 33 and 38, and it's this audible expression of wrath. Later he writes, he did respond to the spectacle of human sorrow, abandoning itself to its unrestrained expression with quiet, sympathetic tears. Jesus wept in verse 35, but the emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. Now you'll notice that it was in his spirit that he raged, that he had this emotion. That is, he raged in himself. Jesus raged internally, justly, but he sinned not. See, his fury turned to tears as an outward expression as he looked on what was happening. Now, Warfield then asks, but why did the sight of Mary and the Jews wailing enrage Jesus? Well, Jesus is not angry as though these women and, and the wailers have overreacted. He's not angry because their tears showed a lack of faith, either that Mary wasn't trusting in God's providence or that uh, maybe uh, they weren't trusting Jesus' power to save. In fact, Jesus wept too. He wept with them in a sense. Now, here's what Warfield concludes. He says, The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. See, Jesus rages against death. He rages against the devil. I love what Warfield says. He says, tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. And he advanced to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. Here we see the heart of Jesus as he wins salvation for us, as he is entering into the lair of the enemy of death. See, Jesus doesn't come cold and disconnected. Maybe that's your vision of Jesus, that he's like way up there, has no idea how you feel, cannot relate to you. He is not disconnected. He's not cold towards us. I mean, if you see it, that the anger over the death is in some ways being fueled and empowered by his love for his sheep. And it's his love that is making him angry about the force that's seeking to undo his good deeds. He is the God of life and resurrection. Jesus came and experienced and felt the brokenness of this world with us and for us and was driven by those feelings to win our redemption. See, Jesus' love for his family provoked his anger over death and moved him towards salvation. Jesus didn't come as a, a ghost, as a 
distant deity, but in full humanity. Herman Ritterboss, speaking of this, adds that as he weeps at the tomb of his friend, he identifies with humanity by experiencing and participating in the grief of all of whose loved ones have gone to the grave. He weeps over it. But then he does what only God can do. He weeps with man as man, and then he does what only God can do, a true miracle. Fifth, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Notice in 38 to to 44 how this takes place. Now here, Jesus is providing that sign that is confirming his statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And notice, he's deeply moved or driven by righteous fury as he approaches that tomb in verse 38. But again, Ritterboss says, he strides to the tomb not in sovereign apathy as a great outsider, but as one sent to the world by the Father as the advocate who has entered human flesh and blood. And catch what happens in verses 39 to 44. Look there with me. Here's what he says. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. But don't miss this. Lazarus was not maybe dead. Not the image we get here. They weren't checking for a pulse. Lazarus reeked of death. Lazarus was really dead. Four days dead, stinky dead. If you're stinky dead, you're real dead. You know what I'm talking about? Martha even asked Jesus if he's sure he wants to smell this, right? Like, are you sure this is about to get ugly real quick, Jesus? I mean, I know you knew that, but I just want to let you know. And John's basically waving his arms and screaming as he writes this story, right? As he is relaying the story of Jesus. He is waving his hands, he's screaming, no one expected Jesus to actually raise Lazarus from the dead, right? Nobody expected this. But notice that Jesus prayed to the Father to show that it was God the Father who sent him with the power over death to glorify the Father. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I love doing that. And the man who had died came out, still bound by his hands, his feet, and his face. And Jesus ordered them to unbind him. God the Father demonstrated his glorious power through his son Jesus, raising him, this beloved friend, to life by the power of his word. Did you see that? He spoke life to this dead man, and here he comes hopping to the grave. They had to, like, unbind him. It's not like he was just chilling in there waiting for his, like, act to come out. He was prepared for death. Can you imagine that scene? I don't think anyone praised Lazarus in that moment for coming back to life. Just a guess. I don't think they were like, Hold on, Jesus. Lazarus, this is awesome. You are awesome for coming back to life. Don't get the sense that that was what was going on. 
Remember it was for the glory of the Son and the Father? I don't think they told him he made a good choice to come back to life. I think he was stinky dead. I think they had to unbind his mouth for him to say anything at all. That's a miracle. That's not just improbable. That's impossible without God. You might wonder how strong the connection of this picture is of Jesus calling Lazarus to come out of the tomb to how we find Jesus calling us to himself. I mean, consider Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, saying, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. How dead? Stinky dead. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, how much do these stories connect? I don't know. I mean, we were dead in our trespasses by nature, but God raised us up with Christ from the dead, from stinky dead. Why? Well, the Bible gives us some answers for the glory of his grace. He says that's one reason, that's one purpose. And if you want something deeper, it's because of the great love with which he loved us. And if you want to go beyond that, he doesn't give us an answer for why some believe and some don't. But to be clear, the death and resurrection of Lazarus was different than Jesus' resurrection. just want to make sure we don't leave misunderstanding this. Let me just give you a few reasons real quick why it's different. For one, Lazarus was raised to mortality. Lazarus died again, right? Jesus was raised to immortality. He, he rose, and then when they were like holding on to him later in John, they were like, no, I'm not through ascending. Like, I'm still going to the Father. I'm going up higher. It's different than Lazarus. Second, Lazarus' resurrection actually pointed to the greater death and resurrection of Jesus. This was just, a, in, a, in a sense, a preview of the great display that was to come through Jesus Christ. Third, Lazarus' death and resurrection did not lead to the salvation of God's people because he was not the Christ. He was not sinless. He was not fully God and fully man. He was not able to die for the sins of many. No one was but Christ. In fact, if you scan down to the end of the chapter, you'll notice that it was the resurrection of Lazarus that led the Jews to want to what? Kill Jesus. Just a question. If you saw somebody raise somebody from the dead tomorrow, would your response be, I think I want to kill that guy? It might. Don't say it wouldn't be. But notice there's one Jewish leader in verse 50, Caiaphas, who speaks better than he knew as he looks at this display and says, this is what we must do. We must kill Jesus. And he explains it this way. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, because everybody's going out, out and worshiping him, so that the whole nation should not perish? Like he was thinking, we're going to kill this guy, so these ups leading people astray. The reality is he, is, he doesn't know that he's actually the instrument that's going to be used in part to kill Jesus such that he might be raised from the dead so that many might come to salvation from every tribe, uh, tribe uh, people, and tongue. See, they would kill God's Messiah on the cross, and three days later he would be raised from the dead in power as the resurrection and life for all those who would put their faith in him. Christian, this text isn't about an evacuation strategy. It is for sure, one, that we look forward to a resurrection that's coming on the last day. I cannot wait for my new body. I am planning on shooting jump shots like Steph 
you know, Kerr, uh, like uh, Steve Kerr and like um, LeBron James. I want to dump on, dunk on him one day. Um, there are all kinds of things athletically that I'm looking forward to do. I'm looking forward to eating pizza without gaining weight. It's going to be a great life. Uh, now, I'm just imagining Jesus is going to tell me how things really work when I get there. But the resurrection is going to be awesome. It's going to be a great day. That world is better than this world. It's not different than this world. It's this world perfected. We look forward to that. But that is not a theology that we're just like on hold, waiting, not living for Jesus now. You got me? If we really believe in the resurrection, Jesus says, and the life that starts today. So Christian, this text, it's not about an evacuation strategy. It's about eternal life. And do you know that if you are in Christ, you are united with Jesus even now? You are resurrected. uh, You are united to the one who is the resurrection and the life. That means that Christ is in you in a sense. You have his Holy Spirit. I love how the preacher Augustine used this text when he was preaching to his congregation. He was preaching to them. And and he gives this as a promise to the congregation, a double promise. He says, let us hear and rise again, right? Not just on the last day, but now. How many of you are crushed under the weighty mass of some sinful habit today? You're here, maybe you're like wanting to even be under your pew right now because you feel like you shouldn't even be here because of sin that has enwrapped you. And yet you really do believe you're a child of God and you need help. You feel powerless when you hear the word say, do not be drunk with wine or do not look lustfully upon a woman. And you feel like you're powerless before that. You hear refrain so that you don't perish. And you reply, I can't stop. I'm weak. And then Augustine breaks into prayer over his people. Oh Lord, Raise them again. Help them to know the power of the resurrection now. That I really have come, that they might have life abundantly now, that they might be freed from their sins. That he who is within you is greater than he who is within the world. And he says, Jesus tells us, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection because the life See, if we have faith in Christ, this Christ is our heart, and he's able to deliver us today. Now, if you're a non-Christian, this message is for you to do today as well. It is that you can have life both today and forever if you will repent of your sins and make Jesus your king today. In fact, we're about to take communion. This is a meal that we have for people who are baptized believers living in faithful covenant community with a local church. If that's not you, then then let it pass you by. But I would love to talk to you after the service about how you can become part of the people who have a future and a hope, who know the resurrection and the life, who is Jesus, the Son of God. Let me pray for us as we prepare for communion. And I'm going to ask if those of you who are helping with communion would come on down, uh, even as we pray. And I'm going to pray for us as we begin to partake in that together.